Well, January 2014 saw us begin a one-year trek through the book of Exodus. Uh, January 2015 through to last month saw us in, um, go on a two-year journey through Luke. Um, they're different journeys, but ultimately uh, very similar. Um, the Gospel of Luke was really a natural extension from the book of Exodus. Both begin with God calling a new powerful leader out of humble origins. They go on to illustrate at length how God created a new nation or kingdom through this leader, um, how his servant gave the law in a new and revolutionary way, um, how the creator lived among the people in ways unheard of prior. And both books focus on the cost and requirements of following the Father. In Exodus, that was sacrifices and feasts and obeying the law. In the New Testament, it's all the teaching that Jesus gave, all the parables, uh, how they reveal the heart of the Father and, and the cost of following him. So they are actually very similar books. And studying both was, at least to me, incredibly valuable. It meant a lot to me to study those, those books uh, over the three years. And that leads us to January 2017. Just as Exodus is one of several books generally classified as the law, the Torah, illustrating how God called his people and then commands them to live, so too is Luke. The Torah and the Gospels are stage-setting books. They are the big deal books. Everything that follows them in their respective testaments are building on and clarifying the material found in these opening game changers, the first five books of the Old Testament and the first four books of the New. They are books of stories, of narrative, of history. They present fallen humans making good and bad decisions that lead them closer or further from their father. They are at times descriptive, meaning they just tell the story as it happened, and you can glean truth from it as you will. Other times they are proscriptive, sorry, prescriptive, uh, meaning they are telling you what to do. This then is how you should act. Uh, and through these stories of success and failure, these stories of speeches and prisons and healings, of deaths and rebirths, of perils and triumphs, of redemptions and rejections. Through all the brutal suffering and the glorious victories, there is a sovereign God at work amongst the people he loves, empowering them to know him better and to follow him closer. He has his hand in the history of his people. He is at work with his people, and he is in control. In the Old Testament, this takes place all these these historical books that follow up on the, the, the precedent-setting first books. In the Old Testament, that's the books Joshua through Esther. That's some 12 books. It's roughly 20% of, of the Bible. Um, so a huge chunk of the Old Testament and a huge chunk of the Bible are these historical books. Certainly, there's elements of that in the Torah, for sure, the first five books. But the, the, the books of history build on the Torah. Um, it's the unfolding of God's work in history to lead his people. So a huge chunk in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, however, all of that is contained in just one single, beautiful, powerful book. The book of Acts. Today I'm going to be giving you an introduction to Acts. A broad overview of the W's. So who wrote it, as well as who's in it, why was it written, when was it written, and when did it happen, where does it happen, and most importantly, what? What does it focus on, and what does it all mean? 
So we're going to take a sneak peek at the journey that we're about to undertake. I don't know if it'll be a year. Almost certainly won't be two years like Luke was. But frankly, I don't care how long it takes. I want to do it the justice that it deserves. And I'm, I'm sure you feel similarly. Please note, before we begin, most of what I'm about to say is academic in nature. And if you know anything about academia, you know that almost nothing is unanimous. There's somebody challenging everything. Um, most of what I'm going to say is unverifiable, meaning we don't know for sure. Um, however, when it comes to these questions, most experts agree on what I'm going to teach you, especially on who wrote it and thematic focuses. So I'm speaking with a great deal of confidence. We don't know for sure, but these are most likely, these are the best guesses. But bear in mind, we aren't certainly certain for certain. We just don't really know for sure. Also, I did a ton of research for this, and I'm not bragging. I needed to do a ton of research. It's my job, so I better do it. And in my original copy of the sermon, I basically threw everything that I studied onto a page until I realized three things. Number one, it was quickly becoming a two-hour sermon, and there's football playoffs this afternoon that I need to watch. By the way, Bob, who do you got, the Packers or the Giants? Yeah, he doesn't care about sports. <laughs> Packers. Sharon's got the Packers, which means Bob does too. No, that's who he's got. Good. So, no two-hour sermon. Number two, um, you aren't taking graduate Bible history lessons, and you didn't, don't ask to be flooded with inconsequential in information, so I pared it back. And finally, number three. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Number three, ultimately, this stuff's not critical. It's not that important. But it does set the stage for what we're going to learn. So I slashed most of what I had written for the sake of time and clarity. But I am freshly studied, so feel free to quiz me after the sermon on what I've learned. You may not know if my answers are right or wrong when you quiz me, but you'll be impressed by my dazzling intellect all the same. And really, that's the goal of this all anyway. So. Anyway, on with the basics. First question. Oh, there's that. The Book of Acts. Church like a flame. That's what I'm calling the sermon series. First question, who wrote it? Luke. Luke wrote it. We aren't 100% sure, but come on, it was Luke. It was definitely the same author as the third gospel. They are stylistically and thematically very similar. Not to mention, both are addressed to Theophilus. Theophilus may be a specific man, may be a group of new believers, probably in Rome or somewhere, that the author is writing to. Part two, so there's the gospel, which is part one, and then there's Acts, which is part two. And part two begins with an acknowledgement of part one, which is tied to the third gospel. I should get my Bible out for this. In Luke, or sorry, in Acts one, gotta get it out of my head of saying Luke. In Acts one, it begins by saying, in my first book, which means there's a book that comes prior. So it makes sense that the two are by the same author, they're written similarly, and they acknowledge each other. Um, but here's the thing. It would have made sense for the early church to attach the name of someone important, like Thomas or Peter or Silas, to this book. If they wanted to give it as maximum credibility, they would have stuck somebody really, really well-known to the authorship of this book. Um, instead, we get the name of someone who is mentioned only a handful of times throughout the letters of Paul. 
Um, and he's kind of, he's a background character. He's kind of like if you're watching, um, if you're watching a movie and in the title credits you find assistant caterer to Mr. Spielberg. It's like this guy had such a small role. Why are we acknowledging it at all? Well, because those small roles are important in the gospel. And if somebody like Luke, who's just mentioned a handful of times as sort of being a companion to this monumental figure, Paul, those people have worth. They are of value. He's basically an unknown, though, this Luke. And yet the early church was adamant, certainly by the mid-2nd century, so around 150 AD, um, when sort of the, the, the Bible was being canonized, and the letters were being compiled. The early church was adamant. Luke is the author. Luke is the author of Luke and of Acts. It, they were sure it was Luke. It's just a few generations after it was written, so they can say with some certainty. Why was this relatively relative nobody who wrote one of the most crucial documents of all time, who is this guy? Why was the church so adamant that it was Luke? Well, Luke is mentioned by Paul in three places, Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon, verse 24. You can look it up if you want. And it mentions that Luke was a physician, an educated man, and this book is written in a very scholarly way with an, a, a surgeon-like attention to detail. So it makes sense that Luke would be the author. Luke acts were clearly written by somebody who knew what they were talking about, he was very well educated. Moreover, these works emphasize Jesus' love for the outsider, especially the Gentile. Luke is, is sort of the gospel to the Gentiles. They all are, obviously. But there's a special emphasis in Luke on Gentiles. And Acts is where the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Um, Colossians seems to indicate that Luke was a Gentile. It mentions six servants of Paul. Three of them are, are called circumcised fellows, meaning Jewish, and their, their names are, are listed, and then it names three more. And Luke is in the list of three who are uncircumcised, meaning probably wasn't a Jew. Um, so he was probably a Gentile. So it makes sense that he, of all the gospel writers, would have a special focus on the Gentiles, right? That would make sense. But most compellingly, there are three passages in Acts, uh, chapters 16, chapters 20 and 21, and chapters 27 and 28, known as the we passages. That's we as in all of us, not we as in teeny tiny little itty bitty passages. But the we passages, they are passages in which the narration turns from they did this, or preached this, to we did this together. And it's a subtle shift, but it seems to indicate that the author of Acts was present for some of the accounts that he is bearing witness to. These three passages indicate someone who was present with Paul, a companion, someone, as we know, like Luke. A deep, so, it's probably Luke, but a deeper question about who's the author would be why the author, Luke, almost certainly Luke, wrote this book. Well, thankfully, the author, again, almost certainly Luke, Thankfully, the author gave his reasoning right at the beginning of his gospel. Um, he says, in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, 
most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything excuse me, that you were taught. Key words here include eyewitness reports from early disciples, a verifiable source. Carefully investigated from the beginning. This is a process. This is well-researched. This is not just on a whim. Phrases like accurate account, meaning it's trustworthy. And finally, certain of the truth. Luke, guys, I'm pretty certain it was Luke. I'm just going to say Luke from now on. Even though I can't be 100% sure, we'll just say Luke and get it over with. Luke wants his audience to be able to trust in the life-changing truth of the gospel and of the account that he writes after the gospel. Certainly, even by his day, many varying heresies were cropping up and threatening to choke out the truth. They needed to be addressed. Moreover, these eyewitnesses that he bases his accounts on, people like the disciples, like the women who followed Jesus, they had the ugly habit of dying, often young, often martyred. And just because that's what happens to people, they pass away. And so Luke wanted to get this treasure trove of information down while he still could, while he still had access to the eyewitnesses. And so Luke, the doctor, with a surgeon's eye for detail, exhaustively recorded everything for posterity's sake. Did you know that Luke acts, the, the companion pieces, Luke acts alone account for fully a quarter of the New Testament, meaning Luke is an author of, the court, of a quarter of the New Testament? We don't often think of him like that, right? Because he only wrote two books. Paul wrote like a hundred not that many, but he wrote lots. So when you think of the New Testament, Paul dominates your thinking of writers of the New Testament. There's also Peter, who wrote a few books. There's John, who wrote John and Revelation, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So he's a major player too. You don't think of Luke in that way, but he's a major contributor to the New Testament. Moreover, about one-fifth of Acts is speeches. Stuff people are saying. And that doesn't mean they're, they're verbatim. They're not word for word. But in an oral tradition, with people who passed on lessons orally and were used to learning and listening like that, they're trustworthy. You, you, can, you can trust that they got the essence of what Jesus was saying, what Peter was saying, or what Paul was saying. What a monumental work he undertook. But it's not just the details. Luke doesn't just record the geography and the names of the events like some court stenographer just... And then this person did this, and then this person did this. It's not bare, empty history. It's not just history. He is also a brilliant theologian. And his works seek to illuminate the character and nature of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as well as the church. More on that later. For now, we can trust that Luke wrote Acts, and he did so in an exhaustive and trustworthy manner to give truth the respect that he deserves. In short, it was written in order to marry accurate history to transformational theology. And we are so much richer because he chose to do that. Next up, when was it written? In the end, we can only say what is most likely. And what is most likely is that Acts was completed by the early to mid-60s A.D., before Paul was executed, we know that Paul was executed in the mid-60s, and before Jerusalem was crushed by Rome in 70 AD. Why do we say it was probably before that? Well, because Acts ends with Paul still alive, and because you think those major events in early church history, the death of Paul and the sack of Jerusalem, 
those would be recorded. Those are notable events because it was when Jerusalem was crushed that the church exploded outward. It had to. They had to flee Jerusalem. So you would think if you're writing a history of the early church, you would include things like Nero's persecution, the death of Paul, and the, the fall of Jerusalem. But Acts doesn't include any of those things. So that means it was most likely written before them. Moreover, the earlier it is, just generally speaking in, in biblical academia, the earlier it is, the more trustworthy it is. The more likely it is to be true. Because you have access to those eyewitnesses. Again, and Luke is said to have, in, he, he declares in the beginning of his gospel that he interviewed those people firsthand. So it makes sense that it's written earlier. So, okay. Early to mid-60s. Next, where? There's five W's. I included where, but it's a dumb question. Where? You know where. Around Jerusalem and then throughout the Roman Empire. So it doesn't make any sense in this context to talk about where. So if you get tired of listening to me, here's a map. That's where. Here's Jerusalem, right there. Uh, there's Ephesus, there's Corinth and Athens. These places that are touched on in, in the book of Acts. Have a look at that. You can tune me out for a few minutes. I'm fine with it. Go nerdy on the map if you want. Next. The next question is, who's in it? I'll go back to the map. Don't worry. The next question is, who's in it? There's the map. You tell me. Who are some names in Act in Acts that you are familiar with? Who are some of the big names? Silas. Silas. Oh, you're going for small key first. I thought for sure somebody would show one super important name first. Peter and... Paul, those are the big name guys, but let's talk about who else? There's Silas, Barnabas, companions of Paul, servants in their own right. John and John Mark. I heard Bob say James. Oh, Timothy. Oh, how did I hear James? Timothy, yeah. Stephen, to me, is what is somebody who stands out huge in, in the book of Acts. Grandma? Stephen, yeah. Named his son after Stephen. Um, um, people who stuck in my mind uh, are Ananias and Sapphira. They're kind of villains. Uh, they're, they're, they don't make good choices. And their story stands out to me big time. Um, guys like Simon the Tanner and Simon the Sorcerer. Different Simons on different sides of the equation. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch. The the person who I remember when I think of Acts only because they have the worst name ever, Dorcas. Um, there's Dorcas. There's jailers and magistrates and emperors. There's all these people. There's the disciples who become the apostles. Um, all these, all, there's a lot of names in the book of Acts. And here is where I'd like to address the name of the book that we're going to be studying. Acts. Acts of what? Well, Commonly, yeah, the full title of Acts is, is Acts of the Apostles, technically. But I'm going to suggest that that's a bit of a misleading title. Because when you think of the Apostles, there's 12 of them, and then Paul becomes the 13th. Well, it should really be called Acts of Two Dominant Apostles, and passing mention of those other various Apostles as well. Because really, the book of Acts is about two major players, Peter and Paul. 
Peter, the rock upon which Jesus declared the church would be built. Peter, who gave the very first evangelical gospel sermon and won over 3,000 people to kind of kickstart the church. Peter, who was instructed to allow Gentiles to participate in this radical new salvation. Peter's a big deal. But then Peter sort of passes the baton in Luke's writing on to Paul. Paul dominates the second half of the book, not to mention the books that follow. Saul slash Paul was the biggest instrument for the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. The book is really all about the acts of Peter and Paul, not the apostles as a whole, although they come in and come out at different times. For this reason, it's been reasonably suggested that it should be known not as the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Early Church, which is a more broad title that sort of accompanies it. Or, and I like this one way better, this is my favorite, not Acts of the Apostles, not Acts of a few select apostles, not Acts of the Early Church, but Acts of the Holy Spirit. I like that. But, for our intents and purposes, we'll just call it Acts, because that covers all of the above. So, down with the map. Who's in it? Lots of people. Mostly Peter and Paul. And finally, the meat of our introduction. What? Now that's a question. What is it all about? What can you expect from this journey? And what's the point of the book of Acts? But before examining those questions, let me ask another one. Can you imagine if we didn't have the book of Acts? How much poorer we would be in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, how the church formed and grew. Um, yeah, what the church should look like, how to handle conflict. We would be so much poorer if we didn't. Not, there's glimpses of that in the writings of Paul, for sure. But if we didn't have Acts, we would be so much poorer. We would be severely disabled um, about the formation, behavior, struggles, and successes of the early church. Jesus' ascension would be just as powerful, but it would feel like a cliffhanger ending to a TV show that then got cancelled before its second season. What happens next? Where do we go from here? Paul's letters would feel emptier if we didn't know about his early history. And much of the 19th century Reformation, by the way, upon which this church is founded, we are a Reformational church, um, we have a proud history in that tradition, the 19th century Reformation was an attempt of church leaders in the 1800s to abandon sectarian denominational ties and seek for church to look like the original early church. That was their goal. We want church to look like church scripturally. Well, that would be really hard if we didn't have Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 15 and the book of Acts in general. It would be hard to know what the early church looked like without Acts. Surely Acts itself is incomplete it, it's not an exhaustive history. It doesn't cover everything that happened to the early church. That would be a much larger document, obviously. Um, there's so much that would be beneficial to know about the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the first Christians. But how much worse off would we, would we be without, without Acts? It's such an important book, but one that I find myself woefully unfamiliar with in the grand sense. A lot of Acts feels muddled together, especially the last half, where it's Paul going on a journey, and then Paul goes on a journey, and then after his journey, he goes on another journey. And it all kind of blends together. And names come in and out, and it's hard to make sense of. Perhaps it's like that for you as well. 
Well, I think that maybe this will help to organize our thinking about Acts. Let's begin by looking at Jesus' last words on earth to his disciples. This is Acts 1, verses, verses 4 and 5. He says, Do not leave... Oh no, sorry. Uh, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are Jesus' last words to his followers, as recorded by Luke. And they also offer a handy-dandy guide to the book of Acts. They offer a, a nice little form and structure. Because Acts can, can be roughly divided into two parts. Part one is the Acts of the Apostles and the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, to quote Jesus. How it began locally, small and local. Um, in other words, part one is Acts ground zero of the movement, Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Um, this section is chapters 1 to 12, and the, um, the dominant figure here is Peter. Part two, uh, the remainder of the book, chapters 13 to 28, can be called Acts of the Apostles and the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. Again, quoting Jesus. Although ends of the earth really means Rome, we, we understand that it, it signifies beyond. Once you get to Rome, basically you've gotten to the heart of the known world at the time for these people, um, which means it can spread everywhere from there. It's mostly Peter in part one and mostly Paul in part two. And throughout Acts, there are common themes that I will be returning to over and over again. And to help us remember these themes, I want to return to my title slide, Church Like a Flame. Notice the summary that I give it. Um, one that you, again, will see over and over again. Church like a flame. I think, upon discussing a few common themes, that you will find that title appropriate. Four themes that I want to talk about. Theme one, the Holy Spirit. I mentioned the last words of Jesus, but how do those last words begin? He says, wait for the Holy Spirit to give you power. You get a sense that without the Holy Spirit given as a gift, the church would wither and die right there on the Mount of Olives. And that's exactly what's true. Without the Holy Spirit fueling and propelling them, they wouldn't go anywhere. But it doesn't. What? What am I... Those people laughing. It does. Okay, you pick the art, people, okay? Try to do something different, and I get mocked for it. I think it's beautiful. The Holy Spirit, back to important topics, the Holy Spirit enlivens and empowers the church. This is abundantly clear in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is both the fuel for the believers and the fire itself. Indeed, and what this is a picture of, smarty pantses, who wants to tell me what this is a picture of? The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them as wind and flame, like tongues of flame above their heads. We'll look at that pretty soon. Pentecost comes quickly. So the Holy Spirit, the church is identified by the presence of the Spirit, and the Spirit itself is identified and represented by fire. And that is fire that is not pitchforks. <laughs> so, theme one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an inescapable force in this book. 
He is promised in chapter 1, he arrives in chapter 2, and he moves, motivates, and makes disciples throughout the next 26 chapters of the work. The work of the Holy Spirit, illustrated by flame, is the first major theme of Acts. Theme 2, and I don't think you can mock this picture, people, is evangelism. Now, I know it's dangerous in this area to call something good a wildfire. I want to acknowledge that first off. But the thing about fire is it spreads, often uncontrollably. It spreads like wildfire. This was true of the early church as well. Evangelism is the crux of Jesus' last message to his disciples. He says, the Holy Spirit will come and empower you, and then what do you do? Take that message. Be my witnesses. Tell people. Locally, a little further out, and to the ends of the earth. Get out there and spread the message. Evangelism is what smashes down walls and allows the Gentiles, that's us, into the fold. Evangelism brings upon it persecution. But like a wildfire, the church cannot be stamped out. Evangelism spreads through the signal fires of miracles and the consuming fires of apologetics. Does anybody know what apologetics is? Defending your faith. Yeah, having prepared reasons, rational, reasonable arguments for your faith. In Acts, it's a huge deal. Along with miracles, apologetics is the thing that wins people over. That's what evangelism looks like in Acts. Like a fire, the gospel of Jesus, as lived by the believers and preached by the apostles, burned a trail all the way to Rome by chapter 28. We know from there that this fire continues to burn all the way to the ends of the earth. Theme three, community. That's hard to see. That's people gathered around a campfire. The world is a cold place. That's true literally today. Um, but it was just as true in the desert of Judea. Like, the world is a cold and harsh place. And the way that the church survived, what the Holy Spirit did, was gathered everyone around the fire with one another and living as Jesus instructed. They gave they shared, they prayed, they learned, and they grew together. In the cold place that was the world, they found warmth together around the fire of the Holy Spirit. It is hard to read Acts and not be inspired by the unity of the church. They had disagreements, but these were overcome because they were on fire for their king and not for themselves. And this fire warmed them together. And finally, theme four, opposition. I'll never forget driving into Jasper and seeing a huge swath of pine trees totally burned up and wondering what awful disaster must have occurred here. What a terrible thing. Fire in a beautiful natural park like that, leaving a big, ugly, charred scar across the valley, like a blemish. But then I found out that the fire was intentional intentionally set by park wardens to control the undergrowth and to foster a healthy forest. See, fire is incredibly important to a, to a forest. You know this. Without fire, forests grow stagnant, and new life cannot grow without fire. And so they set the fire on purpose, to foster health. What I viewed as dangerous and terrible was, in fact, supervised by those in charge and happened for the health of the whole forest. So number four, theme four, is oppression, opposition. The 
metaphor of the controlled burn is fitting for Acts as well. The early church encountered great persecution and suffering. But interestingly, in the book of Acts, that persecution and suffering didn't come from Rome. I'll let that sink in for a second. As awful as we know guys like Nero and Domitian were, they actively sought to destroy Christians. In fact, Nero made Christians scapegoats for the burning of Rome when he probably said it himself to distract people from how awful he was as an emperor. But then he turned his finger on the Christians, and from then on, Rome hated Christians. That's when you start having Christians burned alive and on the pikes and fed to lions. That doesn't happen in Acts. As awful as, as Rome would become to Christians, in the time when Acts was written, oppression didn't come from the Romans. They're not the villains. In fact, whenever Roman authorities in, in the book of Acts encountered the work of faithful believers, they are amazed. And they, they proclaim Christians as good and innocent. Roman authorities in Acts never view the church as a threat, despite how Nero would make them scapegoats later on. Luke is very careful to present the church as peaceful and agreeable to Rome. Why? Because if he wrote it in the mid-60s, you know what was happening in the mid-60s? The Jews were rising up against Rome. And Rome was cracking down on the Jews. That's why they eventually destroyed Jerusalem. So by the time Luke was writing, he wanted to distance himself from the rabble-rousers. He wanted to present the church as agreeable to Rome. Not that they're on the same side as Rome, not that they stand for everything Rome stands for, but that they're not the enemies. That whenever Roman officials came into contact with the church, they saw that the church was good and honorable. Does that make sense? But that's not to say the church didn't experience oppression, because they definitely experienced oppression in the book of Acts. But where did that oppression come from? Well, from two sources. Number one, Gentiles who had their financial livelihoods threatened by the behavior of those ragamuffin Jesus people. Because those Jesus people are forever telling them to stop doing evil things and then their source of income is threatened. And so they lash out against Christians. This is never a major source of opposition. It is easily overcome. The big one, number two, is who? High the Jewish leadership. Yep, the high priests, the temple leaders. Again, these are the ones getting Peter and John and James and Stephen and Paul either imprisoned or martyred. Herod only persecutes them. Herod, again, a Roman official. He only persecutes the church to appease the Jews, to stay in favor with the Jewish people. The reason that Paul's in jail in the first place was that the local Jews order it so. Now, this is not to say that, that Luke or that we should be anti-Jewish. Luke is not anti-Jewish. In the speeches as recorded by Luke, Peter and Paul, they would examine the guilt of the Jewish people, and then they would offer repentance. And when that repentance was forsaken, then they would go to the Gentiles. They go to the Jews first with this message of, of redemption and reconciliation. And then it's rejected. So then they go to the Gentiles, which is very much the process of how things go in Old and New Testament. Luke is neither anti-Jewish but neither is he pro-Rome. It's just that both Jerusalem and Rome, like me, misinterpreted the fire that they saw before them. When I saw that fire in Jasper, I, I misunderstood it. And that's how Jerusalem and Rome approach the fire that is the early church. The Jewish leaders see it as a terrible abomination, a charred scar across the valley, if you will, and they wanted it extinguished. 
The Romans in Acts merely drove right past the, the, the fire and didn't pay it any attention. They didn't care. It's too small to pay it any mind. Soon Rome would get his fire hoses out and fight the fire as best it could, um, to no avail. But both the Jews and Romans failed to see that there was somebody in charge. Somebody was lighting this fire on purpose. It was with divine authority that the fire is set. The blaze was, was ordered to bring health to the whole forest. And in that metaphor, you were the forest. And by the way, the result of all this oppression, all this opposition is what? The fire spreads. Yeah, the church grows wildly, in fact. As is still true today, where the church is most persecuted is where it flourishes the best. God is good. So these are the four mega themes of Acts. There are other themes that we'll come across, but they didn't fit into my fire metaphor, so I scrapped them completely. Or else join them into these other ones. Now, to wrap all this up, for curiosity's sake, in conclusion, after examining those what questions, I have another what question for you. What stories and acts are, are you familiar with? What are your favorites? What are you looking forward to? I like the story of Simon the Tanner uh, being a magician and that seems very fitting for you, Lee. Yeah, yeah. Simon the Tanner having a vision. The conversion of Saul and Paul. I love how the, the martyrdom of Stephen is chapter 7, and it ends with, and the people laid the coats at the foot of a young man named Saul. And Saul was there for the first martyrdom. Celebrated. And that same Saul becomes Paul. I love that story. And the convert the the road, uh, the the scales, the, the whole thing. It, it's, and Barnabas. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's great. What else? Isn't it Peter the cripple that one? Uh yeah, Acts four? Yeah. Yeah, and that that healing is what gets him thrown into prison, I believe. Yeah, and then he warns. Yeah, yeah. Peter does some cool stuff that kind of yeah. gets glossed over because we think of Paul. But Peter does some great Peter stuff, too. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of great... Ananias and Sapphira struck dead on the spot because they didn't give all that they had. Yeah, there's... the nephew and how the Roman centurion got 200 guardsmen and went through the night to protect yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Forgot about that story. I like the story of Okay. First called Christians, yeah. And Luke was probably Antiochian. He was probably from Antioch. There's internal evidence about that. So that would have been a point of great pride for Luke, that in my hometown we were first called, we were first given our name. Paul was a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila, which the woman is named first, which was especially rare in those times. Um, there's all kinds of great stuff in Acts. My, you guys mentioned a few of my favorite. Um, one that always stands out to me is Paul's argument on Mars Hill in Acts 17. 
to a pluralistic pagan society that the ones you are worshiping, there is a creator behind all that, and your, your worship is misdirected. And I, I really like, actually, when I took Acts class in Bible college with Ron Fraser, he had us memorize uh, Paul's speech to um, on Mars Hill. I don't have it memorized now. So. <laughs> Guys, there is good stuff in store. The other one that I'll... So I, I had it written here, I forgot to mention. The end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts 4, what the church looked like and what it did is always so inspiring to me. Just the total unity they had. They gave everything they had. If there was anyone in need, they were taken care of. It's always been inspiring to me. Hopefully, by the end of, I don't know, eight months... 12 months, I don't know how long we're going to be in Acts, but hopefully by the end of it, you have new favorites as well that inspire you to see the Holy Spirit at work, inspire you to be more evangelical, to foster community, and to understand fully the nature of oppression and, and its role in the church. Great, well, um, how about I'll pray and then we'll, we can go. Father, thank you for the story of Acts. Uh, thank you for how your Holy Spirit, as it was alive then, is alive in us today. Um, Father, we thank you for the community that we can share. We thank you that we are all the products of some kind of evangelism. And I thank you that in darkness, uh, you are the fire that uh, draws us in and warms us up to overcome oppression. Father, you have your hand in all these events that we're going to look at in Acts, just as you have your hand uh, throughout our life as well. We love you, and as we journey through Acts, we pray that you and your Holy Spirit would be, be made more real to us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm just realizing Exodus, God the Father, Luke, Jesus the Son, and Acts is really going to be about the Holy Spirit. So that's a nice little Trinity progression. That's great. I planned that. Okay, have a great week, everyone.